0: Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Nothing to Lose by The Floorwalkers, a band based in Columbus. The Floorwalkers is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so stick around to the end of the podcast. We're going to tell you a little bit more about them, where to see them perform, and let you hear the rest of that song. Now let's throw another log on the fire campers. I'm your co-host Steve Yoder and with me is our researcher and storyteller Paula Schleiss an award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal.
1: Hi everyone.
0: So what do you have for us tonight Paula?
1: Steve, I've got a war story for you. Oh, I like these t- types of stories. Tonight's episode takes place 7,000 miles from Ohio's farms and cities in an isolated valley of a Korean peninsula. The country was in the grip of an unusually frigid winter in 1951 when one of the bloodiest battles of the Korean War took place. The Song Massacre was a rout against United Nations forces so brutal It would cost the lives of nearly 800 U.S. servicemen. After the smoke cleared, it took three weeks for the U.S. Marines to make their way to the battleground. And when they got there, they found the stuff of nightmares. Bodies as far as the eye could see, all frozen in the positions where they fell. U.S. authorities tried to identify all the servicemen they could find. And over the following months, many names of the hundreds who had been taken prisoner showed up on roll calls at enemy POW camps. But when all was said and done, there were many men, including a dozen from Ohio, whose fates remained unknown. Men whose missing status left their families in a painful limbo for years, even long after they were presumed to be dead. In recent years, those families have been given some hope. Of the 12 Ohio soldiers whose remains were never recovered from that battle, two of them have turned up in DNA samplings taken from the excavation of mass grave sites in North Korea. Ten other Ohio families, most of whom offered DNA for a database, still wait for closure. Tonight's episode honors the ultimate price those families paid and the ongoing disquiet that comes from the mystery of not knowing the circumstances of a soldier's death. I'm going to tell you the story of the Hong Song Massacre through the life and death of a single teenage soldier, Corporal Kenneth Darden of Akron. I had the privilege of interviewing his family in 2015 for the Akron Beacon Journal. We'll start Kenneth's story in 1948, because that's the first time Kenneth Darden enlisted. He had just turned 16 years old. World War II had ended three years earlier, and boys were in awe of those brave, uniformed warriors who came home victorious, having defeated the enemy while seeing strange and fascinating places around the world. So young Kenneth wasn't all that unusual when he dropped out of St. Vincent High School and ran away to a recruiting station with an altered birth certificate in hand. Yeah, the U.S. Air Force recruiters, they were happy to overlook his baby face and sent him off to basic training at Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. And when he arrived, darned if there weren't two other underage friends of his from Akron already there. Really? Yeah. Darden served several months before his family figured out where he was. His mom, Mary, insisted the Air Force send her son back home, and of course they did. But back home, Darden was just marking time, counting the months to his 18th birthday. And on March 13, 1950, exactly one week after his birthday, he reenlisted, this time in the US Army. Well, he didn't give up his dream, I guess. He did not. But the world was a different place now. Back in nineteen forty eight, things were relatively peaceful. A young man joining the military might have imagined service to be more about traveling the world than fighting bloody battles. By nineteen fifty, that peace was slipping away, and the Cold War was starting. The division of Korea into North and South after World War II had created a tension that was ready to ignite. Russia and China supported communist rule in the North. The U.S. and the United Nations supported a democratic effort in the South. So a couple of months after Darden started his basic training at Fort Bliss in El Paso, Texas, the Korean War was underway. Darden's personality shines through in letters he sent home. He often included money, encouraging his mom and siblings to spend it on presents for themselves. He spoke of trying to finish his high school education, though he was frustrated with math. He begged for news from home and asked how the Cleveland Indians were doing. He also wanted his family to be proud of his dedication to being a soldier when his mom wrote and asked him if he regretted reenlisting, since the Korean War had started after he had signed up, he wrote, What do you think? I'm a sissy? Wait till this outfit gets over there and we really give them hell. But back home, the family could only get increasingly nervous as his letters talked of units in his division being sent overseas. And then in November, when he found himself on a ship, headed for the front. It's worth noting again that Korea was entering a legendary winter, so unexpected that American soldiers didn't even have winter uniforms. When troops first arrived in Korea in the summer of 1950, it was mercilessly hot and humid. Nobody expected that this would be a war where frostbite and exposure would be as much of a threat as enemy troops. In February of 1951, three months after Darden arrived in Korea, his 15th Field Artillery Battalion had an assignment. They were sent to help other American forces in a rather experimental arrangement. The South Korean troops would do the bulk of the fighting in this particular assault being planned, and a special task force of U.S. artillery and infantry guard would follow several miles behind in support. The South Koreans thought the timing was perfect. The Chinese had been gaining ground on the Korean Peninsula, but then suddenly their offensive seemed to stall. It was time for a counteroffensive. What nobody knew was that the communist forces weren't stalled. They were putting their chess pieces into place. Quietly, they had moved six divisions into the valley north of Hongsong in preparation for a new attack. And so on the night of February 11, 1951, while Darden and his fellow soldiers camped for what should have been an uneventful evening, they had no idea they were already miles behind enemy lines and outnumbered 13 to 1. The Chinese attacked in the dark, 33,000 enemy troops swarming a camp of 2,400 U.S. and South Korean soldiers. The battle raged all the next day. In one witness account, a U.S. soldier ran to a truck where wounded servicemen lay and rallied them to drag themselves out of the truck. Wounded who couldn't run were not going to survive this event. Fight for your lives, he told them. They fought until they fell. The battle ended the morning of February 13. Some of the good guys escaped. They fled to a designated regrouping point at Wanju. Kenneth Darden did not check in. A couple of weeks later, on March 1, his mother Mary received a phone call back home in Akron. Her son was missing in action. Five days later, it was March 6, Kenneth Darden's 19th birthday. His family had no idea if he had lived to see it. The day after Darden's birthday, on March 7, U.S. Marines were finally able to retake the narrow valley north of Song and came across the scene They found a slaughter, frozen in time. Troops lay in the road, in the rice paddies, and in the cabs of trucks. A team of Marines preceded the arriving vehicles, pushing arms, legs, and heads to the side of the road so vehicles wouldn't run over the dead soldiers. Some of the G.I.s had been stripped naked. Some soldiers were found with their hands tied behind them, execution-style bullet holes in their heads brass cartridge shells lay everywhere. Sickened by the sight, Marines erected a crude sign along the road. It said, Massacre Valley. As best they could, the Marines tried to account for all the bodies they could find. Corporal Darden's body was not among them. For the next two years, the Dardens prayed their brave young man would be found in a prisoner of war camp The United Nations Command regularly requested from the enemy lists of servicemen held in their custody. Darden's name never appeared. In 1953, the United States and North Korea exchanged sick, wounded, and injured POWs. The U.S. asked their returning servicemen about others who were incarcerated. None had seen Darden. And so that December, two and a half years after the Hoangsong Massacre, A military review board decided Darden almost assuredly had died, perhaps not on the battlefield, but somewhere. He was posthumously made a corporal and awarded the Purple Heart. It was hard to have closure without proof, without a witness, without a body to bury, but the Darden family placed a stone at Holy Cross Cemetery in Akron in Kenneth's memory, though nothing lay beneath it. The Dardans had no reason to hope for a resolution to the mystery of their loved one. But then something surprising happened. From 1990 to 1994, North Korea released to the United States the remains of soldiers who had been excavated from mass graves. They sent over 208 boxes filled with bone fragments and teeth. Authorities estimated they represented about 400 men and records sent by North Korea with the bones suggested many of them likely were prisoners taken at Honsong. The 1990s were very early in DNA technology, but as the system has improved, it increased the chances of tying these remains to their families. Around 2005, Darden's siblings dutifully provided their DNA to be put into a database, just in case. They didn't hear anything for the next 10 years. And then, in 2015, a phone call, prayed for, but never really expected. A jawbone, teeth, and the top of a skull pulled from one of those boxes matched the DNA of Kenneth Darnett's siblings. The young soldier was finally coming home. He was buried with a full military send-off beneath that stone that had sat above empty ground for more than 60 years. The family also learned for the first time a likely scenario of Kenneth's demise. They were given an inch-thick document by the military with maps, photos, and details of their investigation. That's when the family learned for the first time that a fellow soldier had reported that a Durden had been shot in the shoulder during the battle. Given that there was no Durden on the roster, it seemed likely that it was Darden. Men taken prisoner at Hong Song were forced to march 300 miles to a prisoner of war camp. Even a healthy soldier would have suffered terribly on such a trek during the brutal winter. The grave where the remains of Darden and others were found was 200 miles into that 300-mile route. Soldiers who made that march said wounded men who couldn't keep up were killed. Darden may have died from his wounds or possibly was executed with other slow-moving soldiers and buried off the side of the road. I told you two of the 12 Ohioans whose bodies were unaccounted for in the years after the Song Massacre have been identified. The other was Corporal Glenn Edward Kritzweiser of Piketon, Ohio, who was just a month older than Darden and served with Darden in the 15th Field Artillery Battalion. Glenn was born February 7, 1932, to Oakley and Stella Kritzweiser. He graduated from Waverly High School before enlisting at the age of 18. Kritzweiser was taken prisoner during the Battle of Hong Song just a week after his 19th birthday. The Army was able to confirm this because they had actually picked up a communist radio broadcast in which Kritzweiser's name was listed with others being taken to a prisoner of war camp. For the next two years, no one knew Kritzweiser's fate, and his family held on to hope that he was surviving his experience at a POW. But in August of 1953, military authorities received unconfirmed information that Kritzweiser died while a prisoner way back on July 2, 1951. It appeared he had only lived three and a half months after the battle. Kritzweiser's remains were not in the boxes where Darden was found. His were actually collected back in 1954 in an arrangement called Operation Glory when the United Nations and Communist forces exchanged their war dead. The Department of Defense has also been testing some of those remains, and in 2017, some of the bones were identified as belonging to Kritzweiser. He was laid to rest at the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, Hawaii. Today, more than 7,800 Americans still remain unaccounted for from the Korean War, including 411 from Ohio. Here are the 10 Ohioans still missing from the battle at Hongsong. From the Army's 15th Field Artillery Battalion, Sergeant Charles Conrad Campbell of Howard, who they called Buck. It is believed he died in a POW camp on March 31, 1951. Corporal Samuel Eugene Frisco of Cleveland, whose name never appeared on any POW camp list, he was officially presumed dead on December 31, 1953. From the 38th Infantry Regiment, PFC Albert Luther Brown of Akron, witnesses said he was taken prisoner and died on May 31, 1951. Sergeant James Leslie Dents of Steubenville. He reportedly died in a POW camp on June 19, 1951. Corporal Charles Everett Johnson of Portsmouth. He was taken prisoner and is believed he was at the Swan Bean Camp and died in an air raid on that camp on April 22, 1951. From the 503rd Field Artillery Battalion, Corporal Arthur Clarence Cobbs of Akron, another whose fate is a complete mystery. He was listed as missing in action until a presumption of death was made on December 31, 1953. Corporal William Lloyd Jackson, Jr. of Cleveland, who is believed to have perished in captivity on April 30, 1951. And from the 9th Infantry Regiment, PFC George Monroe Gales of Cincinnati, another complete mystery, listed as missing in action, but declared dead on December thirty-first, 1953. First Lieutenant James Webster Beard of Xenia, believed to have died in captivity on March thirty-first, 1951. And finally, Corporal Frank Delano McCluskey of Youngstown, he was born on September second, nineteen thirty-three, which means he joined the military while he was underage. He died at the age of seventeen. It is believed he perished in a POW camp on May
0: thirty-first, nineteen fifty-one. It's uh, it's kind of easy to put an enemy face on North Korea during that battle because we're you know of course we're the Americans, but it's something to be said for be sure a bond that were human, and for them to turn over
1: all that, I mean, they knew that... it was reciprocal. I'm sure they wanted their dead, too.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. But again, you know, know, we we both want to honor our dead.
1: Yeah. and, And I will say that, as I said, these bones were turned over back in the 1990s. I'm not sure how they would have felt about taking that kind of action in recent years, given the tension between our countries.
0: Yeah, correct. I was reminded of a story of, you ever see the movie, We Were Soldiers Once and
1: Young? I don't think I did.
0: Okay, so Hal Moore is fighting uh, Gwen An. He's a general for the Vietnamese, and it's the very first battle of the American War. It's the La Drang Valley, and uh, he's up on the hill, and of course, Hal Moore's trying to rush this hill. Uh Fast forward to 1990, uh, I think it was 1995, how Moore goes over there, and they're both sitting there in the same parade box watching a visa float going down the road, and he turns to Hal and said, really, what did we fight this war for? You know, we're watching a visa float going right down the street.
1: Yeah. So
0: it's just it's sad that so young, so young to lose their life.
1: I am, again, along the vein of... um bonds that were created after the war and people wondering what the heck they were fighting for. I'll never forget one of my favorite stories was a U.S. uh, Air Force pilot who was shot down over Germany. And there was a boy who had witnessed it. And when that boy grew up, he became fascinated with these aerial battles over his home. And he started doing some research. And he located the German fighter that had shot down the American and found the American who was shot down, who survived. Oh, wow. And put them in touch with, with each other. Wow. And the two pilots would start exchanging Christmas cards.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. There's a, they share a bond. It's, uh, it's strange to us, but they were both in battle together.
1: Yeah. Against that, each other. Absolutely. And once the war is done and... You know, you're, you're done playing your role in that. in the end, like I said, a lot of people looked back and wondered what had gone wrong.
0: Right. There was also a story of Neil Armstrong during the Korean War. The North Koreans would tie these metal, like, lines across the valley. So that way, when a plane goes through the valley, it'd clip their wings off. And that happened to Neil Armstrong. Clipped off six inches of his wing, and he was able to fly out to the ocean and ditch before... Wow. Know, before he
1: died so,
0: <laughs> Yeah, It's pretty interesting
1: He was so skilled
0: Yeah, wow. absolutely
1: Instead of an armchair detective This episode We thought we'd treat you to a reading Of some of the letters Kenneth Darden Sent home to his mother Mary During his service Here are some excerpts Read by Jeffrey Schleiss Of New Franklin
2: April 18th, 1950, Fort Bliss, El Paso, Texas. Well, I arrived here on time last Monday and finally got a permanent assignment in the 36th AAA Gun Battalion yesterday. And the AAA doesn't mean the Akron Automotive Association. It means anti-aircraft and artillery. It's pretty hot out here today. It must be up around 81 degrees. We're practically out in the middle of the desert here. We're at a place they call Logan's Heights or the Dust Bowl. The wind from the mountains blows up all day, and it is miserable. June 18th, 1950, Fort Bliss. A couple weeks ago, I took the GED test for high school and passed it. It consisted of five tests lasting two hours each. I passed them all except English. The Army recognized me as a high school graduate now. Next month, I'm going to enroll in school for algebra. I'm going to need it. August 3rd, 1950. Fort Bliss. Everything is okay with me down here. Except they messed up my pay this month, and I only got $50. I'm not going to get any birthday present for you. So why don't you go out and buy yourself a nice dress with that money I sent home. Write and tell me what you can to get you. They're still getting news from our outfits going overseas. It seems that I'm one of the lucky ones so far. I'm still waiting for them to call me any day. What did you mean in your last letter when you said, Aren't you sorry you joined up again? What do you think, I'm a sissy? Wait till this outfit gets out there. We'll really give them hell. They're not going to get away scot-free for what they did. It gets me so damn mad to hear how they're pushing us around out there. August 20th, 1950. Fort Bliss. Congratulations on your 40th, 5th birthday. Okay, okay, I forgot you're just 35 today. By the way, how old are you? I'm still in school down here, and it's not getting much easier. I'm studying my head off every night, and that math is still so hard. I can't get a decent night's rest anymore. When I go to bed, all I can think of is formulas, square roots, algebraic expressions, and the horrors that are going to come with the slide rule. November 16th, 1950. Fort Lawton, Washington. Just a few lines to let you know I arrived safely. Got a ride out of Dayton Monday morning, and the plane was supposed to go to Tacoma, Washington. But one of the motors started to go bad, and we had to land at Des Moines, Iowa. From there, I took the bus out. I will never take another bus ride that long. I was stationed at Pier 91 in Seattle for five days, and then I transformed out of there. I don't know how long I'll be here. Probably a few days. I'm supposed to fly over, but nothing is official yet. Well, this is all for me now. Me and my buddy got a date, and I got to get cleaned up. So right soon, I don't know how long I'll be here. November 20th, 1950. Camp Drake, Tokyo. I bet you are surprised to hear from me all the way out here in Japan. I left the States last Friday, and 28 hours later, I was over here. We flew out from the States. Our first stop was Anchorage, Alaska, and then some place in the Aleutians, and from there into Tokyo. We flew into a plane belonging to the Royal Canadian Air Force. It was pretty rough flying weather. You sure can travel fast these days. How did the Maslin and Barberton football game come out? And also the Burkhart and Brownville, Pennsylvania football game? How is everything coming at home? Do you still have a lot of card games around there? P.S. Send me about 21 addresses of people I should send Christmas cards to. November 28, 1950. In Chien, Korea, I finally arrived in Korea this morning It took us three days to get here from Tokyo We had a pretty nice trip coming over The water was calm and the weather was nice It doesn't seem that just three weeks ago I was home I must have traveled pretty close to 12,000 miles since then When we docked this morning and the band started to play The first piece they gave us was If I knew you were coming, I'd have baked a cake All the troops on the ship almost died laughing from what they heard December 16th, 1950, Seoul, Korea. I'm sending a money order so you can buy everyone a Christmas gift and wish them all a Merry Christmas from me. I guess you wonder where I got this much money. I got to this outfit with $8 and won it all in a card game. I'm going to send another $50 pretty soon. I don't know what I'll get Frankie. But get Tommy some clothes and get yourself something real nice. Take good care of yourself and don't work too hard. Write and tell me the latest news.
0: That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com.
1: And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. The Floorwalkers are based in Columbus and made up of Jonathan Elliott on lead vocals, Theo Perry on lead guitar, Benjamin Meinhold on bass, Todd Hamrick on the keys, Jesse Barr on guitar and Aaron Bashera on drums and percussion. Be sure to follow them on Facebook and Instagram, and you can also check out their website, thefloorwalkers.com. Better yet, go see them in person. They'll be at the Wonderbus Festival in Columbus on August the 17th, and performing at the Crafted Festival at Columbus Commons on September 14th. Now, Nothing to Lose is their latest single, but they're already working on their next release. So don't be surprised if we revisit them or any of our bands in the near future.
0: Absolutely. Well, I know I'm ready to hear that song. So turn up the volume, sit back and chill, and we'll play you Nothing to Lose by The Floorwalkers. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries.
3: You heal inside The answers to your questions revealed in time And when we see it happen Yes, I will be your captain Babe, I'll show you satisfaction Cause you got